Well, hello. I'm back again. Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth and I write a personal finance blog here in New Zealand called, unsurprisingly, The Happy Saver. And because New Zealand is a really small place, it's seriously more like a village. And the people I seek out are often uncomfortable having their story told in public. You'll hear these stories from me and not directly from them so that they can retain their privacy. Plus, I could talk for an Olympic sport, so by doing it this way, you get a greatly edited version of the conversation that I've had. And I just chat to people, I learn their story, and I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from fellow Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips, and point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. I'm starting out this series of six new episodes with a woman that I know pretty well, the reason being that she's actually one of my sisters. I'm the youngest of five and I've already interviewed another sister of mine, Liz. She's in episode number seven, so go back and check that one out. My older sister is now probably starting to get a bit concerned that I'm going to come knocking on her door, but my brother still has absolutely no idea that I even create a podcast, so he should be safe for now. But today I'm talking with my sister, who wanted to be called Rachel, who is just one year older than me, aged 48. It took her a little convincing to get her to appear on my podcast, but the reason I wanted to share her story is because it is an excellent example of steady and consistent attention to detail over a really long period of time. And as you will soon hear, Rachel has had a few downs and ups, but it was careful planning and setting of goals that has helped her stick to her teaching career, weather the Christchurch earthquakes and the subsequent insurance battle, and with her now teenage daughter, thrive after a divorce. And I was particularly keen to catch her at an important milestone, and we spoke on the eve of her last ever mortgage payment. But before I tell you all about Rachel, I just have a quick message from today's fabulous sponsor, Pocketsmith. After many years of running my blog and podcast out of any room in the house that would give me some privacy, I decided the time had come to create a studio in the garden to call my own. Using Pocketsmith, I tracked the entire project by creating a category called Writing Studio, and I set a realistic budget of just $2,200. With such a tight budget, using Pocketsmith helped keep track of the exact cost of the build, tracking both the money spent on new and recycled products, and the money received from selling unwanted goods to fund the project. It gave me peace of mind to head into a project with such a strong financial plan. But that doesn't mean I didn't overspend though. In fact, Pocketsmith let me know that I'd overspent by $217. That's not Pocketsmith's fault, entirely my own. And the studio I have now was so worth every extra dollar spent. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. It's fair to say that Rachel, which by the way is not her real name, as she did want a little bit of anonymity, we've known each other for a while, but given the fact that we stopped living at home together about 30 years ago, it would be wrong of me to assume that I know her story or what motivates her today. So I was interested to start at the beginning and ask her what she recalls from her childhood about what she was taught about money. Like me, she was Australian-born but Kiwi-raised when our parents decided that Aotearoa was a far better place to bring up kids. Too right it was. Financial literacy was not something that was taught at home, so she took on board the thoughts of our parents, particularly our dad, who for the record was a really awesome dad except for when it came to his view on money and wealth. In his own family, there'd been large disagreements about money, 
and he very much carried that baggage with him throughout his life. Rachel internalised that money was bad and that people who wanted it were greedy, that people who had wealth were spoiled and not people you want to associate with, that it was best never to show an interest in it, you should look the other way, and attaining money is really not for you. But she also sensed that for Alfano, although money was considered a terrible thing, it actually dictated everything, where we lived, what car we drove, the clothes we wore, and the food we ate. Although she never really felt poor, every decision came back to money, and it meant that Rachel left home feeling very confused about how to use it. There was an experience that stuck with her that she shared with me. She remembers that mum and dad inherited some money, maybe about $5,000. Rachel was quite young but recalls learning about this when we were driving to visit some family friends who lived near Portobello on the Otago Peninsula. It was at the crest of a hill as the road dropped down into Hooper's Inlet that dad announced, kids, we have inherited some money. She remembers the exact spot because right at that spot in the road stood a road sign that said, steep grade, change down. And all seven of us always used to shout out, steep grade, charge down. And he would. It was awesome. Hence the title of this podcast today. I thought I'd better explain that one to you. But Rachel's immediate thought upon hearing about this inheritance was, I never have to worry about money again. But the next thing Dad said was, and we are going to give it all away. She remembers feeling like she had been punched in the gut, going from thinking we had been financially saved in one instant to hearing that nothing at all would change because of what he was about to do. And it confused her greatly. And true to his word, Dad did give it all away. He bought a water well for a village somewhere in India and was very happy to have done so. Dad, you see, always thought we were rich, while the reality was often to the contrary. And this reminds me that I really should ask Mum what she thought about all of this. In Rachel's teenage years, the family moved around the South Island a bit, and so that she could have continuity with schooling, Rachel lived full-time with friends while she finished up her schooling before moving back in with our parents up in Dunedin. And it was probably an unusual thing to do, but she remembers it as being a really good experience, as the couple she boarded with were lovely, and it was probably a way of learning to be independent too. Next, she studied fashion design, a course she absolutely loved, and she also worked part-time sewing for a designer who made kind of outdoor-type clothing. She still uses those skills today and is a fabulous sewer of clothes, and part of the reason why she got so good at it was due to wearing second-hand clothes growing up and she hates used clothing to this day. These days she loves to spend money on new, well-made clothes or to buy beautiful fabrics and create her own, and it's a really impressive skill to have. She also briefly went to uni and tried out a few papers, but said she didn't overly apply herself. She moved up to Christchurch where she completed a Bachelor of Design at Polytech, went flatting, made a bunch of friends, and had a pretty awesome time. She was able to receive a student allowance of $140 a week, which was enough to pay her rent. She ate cheaply, potatoes and yams seemed to have featured a lot, and she rode her bike for transport. She worked every single holiday at the warehouse, plus she did some teacher aiding as well. The course took three years and she graduated with $18,000 in student loan debt. When she graduated, she didn't really know what she wanted to do for work. Most people who complete that course actually head into graphic design, but although extremely artistic, That was really not her jam, so she actually began to work full-time at the warehouse back in Dunedin while she thought about it. But it was to be one of those years when nothing quite worked out, and I think we all tend to have a spell like that. Her trusty Honda Civic caught fire in the countdown car park, I remember that one, and that was the end of that. 
She had a flatmate who was a complete psycho, I remember that one too, and she missed her Christchurch mates and everything just felt kind of depressing. But she was also doing some teacher aid work for a local school, and it was one of the teachers there that said to her, you would make an excellent teacher. No, no, and absolutely no was the response to that, but she applied for Teachers College anyway, and she got straight in. This took her back to Christchurch and back to her friends. She met her future husband, and she had a very, very social time. Lots of parties, lots of fun, and just enough attention to her studies to pass the course. Although she did manage, she said, to get up the nose of a tutor or two who thought she was doomed to failure. But for each workplace placement she did, the staff loved her, the students loved her, and because she had such good references, she was able to prove her tutors wrong and be the first in her class to secure a full-time permanent teaching position. Her starting salary at the age of about 26 in about 1999 was $36,000. Her partner was also working full-time, so they were double income with no kids, working hard, but enjoying life and enjoying many overseas trips over the next couple of years. She had her $18,000 student loan, and he had a tiny loan too, she recalls. They barely paid any attention to them, in line with her view of money when you think about it, but both of their debts were slowly paid off over time via their salary. In hindsight, lingering far longer than they really needed to, they could have easily just paid them off, but neither of them were interested in money. She recalls she might have got a letter from the IRD about her loan balance, and she was like, oh yeah. Might as well just pay it all off, so she finally did. They both started to make good money and accumulate money, and because they had a dog, no one wanted to rent them a house. So around 99-2000, they did what my dad advised, and that was to buy the worst house on the best street. It was a small two-bedroom house, probably about 60 to 70 square metres, and they put down a deposit of just $8,000 on this $115,000 house, and they got married. They could have easily put down a far bigger deposit, but she said that neither they nor the bank were that bothered, which points to their total lack of interest in finances. They totally renovated it, doing all the work themselves at nights and weekends while they worked full-time, which I think was the path of many Kiwis at that time. You wander into house ownership because you could. Houses used to be reasonably priced. Then you thought nothing of pulling the back end off your house over the weekend and having your new or second-hand French doors fitted by Sunday night. Things began to evolve when she became pregnant with her daughter at the age of 32, and with their mortgage down to just $40,000 by then, they decided to move to a bigger house in Christchurch to fit their growing whānau. They sold their home for $360,000, with no idea how much they actually spent renovating it, and moved to a huge home which they paid $589,000 for. She thinks that they took on a mortgage of about $270,000, and she was able to take maternity leave from her teaching and remain at home with their baby daughter. However, her marriage was to end soon after, when her daughter was about one year old. Tongue-in-cheek, Rachel called it a conscious uncoupling, and it was an amicable separation. Don't get it wrong, it was freaking stressful, but they handled it the best way they could, and from my perspective looking in, they were just two nice people who just were not overly well-suited. After only eight months in the big house, they sold it at a $50,000 loss, and they bought a car each and split all assets and money down the middle. She said it was fair and straightforward. They split financially very early in the separation, and they parted on good enough terms. She moved into a rental property and began to rebuild her life. The area that she moved to was full of fun and joyful people who were always keen to include her, and she had a lot of good times during that time of her life. 
She started a little business from home that drew on her artistic skills, which she absolutely loved. She also thought stuff it and decided to invest a lot of time and money in herself. She took up yoga to get herself strong and healthy again. She said she spent a lot of money on beautiful clothes as she wanted to feel good. And she said that while she looked good on the outside, yeah, not so much on the inside. She had a lot of counselling, unpacked a lot of stuff, let go of her beliefs that were not serving her and got strong with yoga, which helped her feel a lot better. She took it a day at a time. And divorce, no matter how amicable, is emotionally incredibly difficult. During this time, her ex-husband provided financial support that was fair and fit the legal requirements. And after two years away from work, she started back at work part-time, and I was lucky enough to be able to look after my gorgeous niece during this time. From the sale of the house, she had $100,000 sitting in her bank, and this was always ring-fenced for a future house. While she was renting, she was spending relatively freely, but she was always mindful not to go backwards and eat into her house money. She gave herself enough freedom to have a good time, but not so much that she would jeopardise her future. Protecting her nest egg was absolutely crucial. When she felt ready to commit, in about 2009, she found a home she loved for herself and her daughter for $360,000 in a new community. She put down her entire $100,000 deposit and signed up to a $260,000 mortgage. It was an instant attraction the moment she saw the house and the sale moved fast. It was on a big section, had a big studio, a glass house and a garage and it was in the art deco style that she really liked. Her new neighbours had kids the same age and she had an instant new community. The house had a lovely vibe about it and she felt instantly at home. With her mortgage she realised quite abruptly that she needed to get serious. She was only working part-time because her daughter was so young but things started to feel a little precarious and she realised that she needed to start putting together a bit of a plan. But then the September 2010 earthquakes hit Christchurch. It hit at 4.30am in the morning, it was pitch dark and very, very frightening. And I remember it like it was yesterday and it was actually utterly terrifying. Her house was positioned at the bottom of a boulder-filled hill and whereas up to that point the house had always had a wonderful presence about it, now it had a dark, ominous presence that she'd not felt before, and she couldn't put her finger on it until the February 22nd earthquake happened in 2011. Thankfully, her and her daughter were not home when it hit, but when she did manage to get back home, her house was off its foundations, and neighbours on either side had huge boulders literally inside their houses. Although it was terrible, there was a part of her that was relieved that her previous instinct was right. She left her house, and apart from retrieving some belongings, her house was deemed uninhabitable and unsafe and she never went back. She was forced into renting again, which after a good experience last time was disappointing this time round. Her fellow humans, or the ones who called themselves landlords, were a disappointment during this time, letting greed overtake basic humanity in a time of crisis. Being a single parent, she was excluded from a number of houses due to prejudice. Even the agent said, you'll never get a place as a single parent but she eventually found a rental for about $300 a week. To sum it up, she said, it was a shithole that the property manager and landlord were not interested in fixing and they would only allow her to sign a three-month term and every three months they would increase her rent. She stayed because during that time of the earthquakes, there was high demand for housing and terribly short supply and there was simply no place else to go. Throughout this time, she was also paying her mortgage, albeit slightly reduced to her bank. ASB. 
During this time, she went to every meeting that she could to get her insurance on her home sorted. She went to so many meetings with Sarah, which is the Canterbury Earthquake Recovery Authority, that her daughter literally thought she was going to visit a friend called Sarah. It was such a household name. It was an epic two-year battle, a nightmare really, and finally she got the phone call she needed to hear that they would pay her out her full replacement insurance. All up, she received $560,000. Her friend thought she'd won lotto. After all, she paid $360,000 for the house, but it definitely didn't feel that way. And the cost she had incurred renting and the massive and stressful upheaval to her daily life were in no way worth the payout. After paying off her mortgage, she ended up with about $300,000. She put the money in the bank and let out a huge sigh of relief. The landlord put her rent up yet again and she finally snapped and told him to go and perform an unmentionable act upon himself, if you get my drift. She gave notice, but she had nowhere to go. She loved her old community and wanted to go back there and she spent her free time driving the streets, scouting for a house to buy or a section to build upon putting notices up in coffee shops and asking around. It was not easy to buy a house in Christchurch at that time. It was a hugely hot and broken housing market where any house you looked at had earthquake issues. Johnny and I also lost our home in the Christchurch earthquakes and we ultimately gave up in defeat and moved out of Canterbury entirely. But Rachel was far more persistent. She told me a story where she was too late to one sale and she stood outside the house kicking herself that she missed the opportunity. She got talking to a neighbour of that property, an elderly gentleman of 92, she said, and when she said she was upset to have missed out on putting an offer in, he said, nope, that's not your house, you were wrong, you have a better one coming to you. It was quite the moment, she said. And sure enough, the next week, she had a response to her notice. She got a phone call offering her a section for sale, she quickly got a sale and purchase agreement written up and signed it up for $182,000. All the stars aligned and the 92-year-old man was spot on. Becoming homeless was imminent due to her telling the landlord where to go until someone said, why don't you buy a caravan? So she did, paying $16,000 cash for one. She thinks it was about 14 foot, so pretty small. It was delivered to her new section, but she had absolutely no idea how to caravan. We were not that um, summer holiday in a caravan type of family but she quickly worked it out, getting water from the neighbour, working out how gas works in a caravan and taking her battery to school for the caretaker to charge while she taught classes. She showered at the gym when she could and just went about living a very simple, pared-back life. The size of her caravan didn't allow for much more than that. Things steamrolled pretty fast. She was introduced to a cheap draftsman who interpreted the plans that Rachel and her daughter had each drawn up. He recommended a builder and it all just flowed. It was meant to be. She kept working and she started organising. Her daughter moved between the caravan and her father's house, giving both of them a break each week. And she loved her builders. They were so nice to her, she said. They never ripped her off, probably due to the tea and biscuits and her easygoing manner. It was a really positive experience, she said. After eight months of living in the caravan, her daughter declared one day that she was over living in it and she wanted to be in the house. She just didn't want to do another night in it. So with the approval of the builders, I should add, Rachel scooped her into her arms, carried what I imagine was a little giggling seven-year-old girl over the threshold and they moved into their unfinished house. They very much roughed it. It didn't even have a kitchen. She feels so fortunate that she found the right tradespeople at just the right time. 
They got a dog and then she met her partner. Lots of amazing things happened at once, she said. She sold her caravan for $13,000 as it had served its purpose of providing a cheap and reasonably comfortable stable place to call home. And today she considers her beautiful 100 square metre amazing house to be her biggest financial triumph. She has now been in it for seven years. All up, the house, which is a two-bedroom with one bathroom and no garaging, cost $240,000 to build with a $127,000 mortgage. She said it got a little bit messy and disorganised with the finances at this time, trying to work, trying to parent, trying to sort fittings for the house. She managed to buy three toilets when she only needed one, she said, and pay invoices, etc. But she got there in the end. With this mortgage, she stayed with ASB Bank because she still didn't really know much about money fixing some of her debt and floating some and was paying it off quite slowly but she read The Barefoot Investor by Scott Pape, a book that she credits as being a game changer and she happened to speak to me and she finally started to pay closer attention to her money. Apparently I was the only person who ever said to her that you don't have to have a mortgage. Johnny and I had paid ours off by that point. Everyone else, including her partner who had a mortgage of his own, was telling her it was normal. Everyone had one. But to her, she didn't like it. It didn't feel comfortable. She knew she didn't like debt, but sitting down with her bank saying, I don't know what to do, didn't result in giving her the loan structure that would get her debt free. I had mentioned to her how New Zealand Home Loans works, and she had a meeting with them, and she said they had a really good conversation, and she realised for the first time that she could pay off her mortgage. So from then on, it was game on. She moved her mortgage to them and she has basically been working with one pot of money ever since. All her income and expenses go into one account as she steadily works her way back to zero. She kept an account and credit card open with ASB throughout and when she is done with her mortgage she plans to continue banking with ASB. But the beauty of being debt free is that if she chooses to, changing banks is really easy. When we spoke in mid-July of 2021 her balance was down to just $3,000. She is tantalizingly close now. So how did she do it? For seven long years, she has paid close attention to her income and her expenses. The one thing that made her go, oh, I'm spending more than I earn, is tracking her spending 100% of the time. And she says she will track her spending for the rest of her life. She just set up a simple dock on her computer and she has the habit of every time she walks back into her house, Having spent something, she goes straight to her spreadsheet and inputs that expense for the month. Manually entering it stops her spending, she said, because she does not want to come home and log lots of purchases. On the day we spoke, she just entered a $33 dry cleaner bill for her daughter's school uniform clean in readiness for the new term. Her three main financial habits or the things that she just automatically does are number one, updating her spending spreadsheet and documenting everything she spends. Number two, Deep down, she is an environmentalist, so she never wastes anything. Food is a very obvious example, plus she makes her own beautiful clothes, and these simple practices mean she just does not spend that much. And number three, she genuinely said she does not give a shit what other people think about her or the way she lives her life. She has zero status anxiety and lives a simple life. Which leads nicely onto her money elevator pitch or a sentence that would sum up her approach to money. She said, honestly, people think more about themselves than you, so don't spend your life concerned about what other people think of you. If people don't like you, it's probably because they have misunderstood you. Just be your authentic self. 
And money is a tool. Money is freedom too. Money is bloody important. And don't say, I don't care about money ever, as she once did. Follow your nose. If it feels right, it is. If it feels wrong, it is. Her greatest financial flop comes down to the big house she and her ex-husband once bought. It was all ego, she said, and also tied up with being in a relationship with someone who was not on the same page financially. But to get herself to the place where she finds herself today, she doesn't feel she has gone without while she has concentrated on paying off her mortgage in the last seven years. She has planned, saved up for and paid for trips overseas. And she said that you don't have to go without. You just have to consider the purchase carefully and know where your money is going. Don't just spend for spending's sake. You have to get yourself out of the habit of spending because it's such a bad habit. And she just genuinely does not need anything. She is not a materialistic consumer, so she spends a lot less than most. The most expensive thing she has purchased for herself in the last 90 days was actually flower seeds for her garden and some nice food to enjoy during the school holidays. Cars were an example of wasted money. She had previously driven European cars, which are expensive to buy and costly to fix. Add to that the appallingly bad Christchurch roads as the city recovered from the earthquakes, and she has managed to destroy two cars. She now drives a $6,000 Toyota, which she paid cash for. Her mechanic is a lot happier with this purchase, she said. She once referred to her Toyota as her hair shirt, the car that every time she gets in it, it reminds her of her debt-free goal. But it's cheap to run, it's cheap to service, cheap to insure. It's just about perfect, and it won't be forever. Soon enough she can upgrade if she wants to, but there are no immediate plans to do so. I asked her if she thinks she will become a millionaire and if this is even her goal. She didn't think she could become a millionaire given her situation and if she did she wouldn't know what to do with it. But I pointed out that a millionaire simply means working out what you own minus what you owe and given she is almost debt free with a house now worth about $540,000 plus the $66,000 she has in KiwiSaver, her net worth is already at $606,000. Given her plans to keep working and growing her wealth over the years, I actually think she will easily achieve this milestone. And all that number really means is financial security and the freedom to begin to use your time how you want. In her case, she said it's to paint, create art and sleep because she is so exhausted. Becoming a millionaire will let her do that. Being a teacher is bloody hard work, she said. Education takes its toll on a person and having worked as a secondary school teacher, For 20 years now, she feels like a change in career is on the horizon. She has taken on a head of department role and her working week is varied with time spent both actively teaching tamariki and working in extra roles, but they all add up to her now working full-time and earning about $86,000 a year before tax. She feels adequately paid for what she does and having taught for a long time now, you get pretty good at working smart. Plus, let's not forget the 12 weeks of paid holiday each year and generous sick leave if required. The biggest change in her profession is the counselling skills needed to help out the children she teaches who are struggling with all kinds of dilemmas and dramas. It takes up a lot of time and headspace and is relentless hard work, which teachers are not adequately trained for, she said. She likes to teach and show kids how to do stuff to extend kids' learning and help their confidence, and she gets to hang out with some really interesting kids, she said. Seeing teens have an aha moment and turn a corner is the best. It gives huge job satisfaction, but the drama that comes with it is really draining. Teachers are offered free counselling sessions because of this, and she took the opportunity to use the service, which led to talking to a mentor who could help give her career some direction. 
She said he offered practical, no-bullshit advice, talking over all parts of her life, working out what was working and what was not, and he forced her to write a five-year plan. So, it's a hard thing to do, but that is exactly what she did, and she's been sticking to it religiously. She said she feels less stressed and less trapped as a result, and would encourage all of us, if you are feeling a little stuck, to seek out some external support from a person with the skills to guide you. Her plan involved a few goals she needed to meet, and they were to have $65,000 in KiwiSaver by the end of 2021, she had $66,000 in an ASB growth fund when we spoke, so she's nailed that goal, to own her own home, which she will do in August 2021, and to have $10,000 in savings by the end of the year too. Oh, and by the way, she has shared the financial knowledge that she has acquired with her partner, and despite him telling her that everyone has a mortgage, he actually knuckled down and became debt-free himself. They had been neck and neck, but he just beat her to the end. By the end of 2022, she will have $75,000 in KiwiSaver and have $40,000 in savings. By the end of 2023, she will have $85,000 in KiwiSaver and $70,000 in savings. By the end of 2024, she will have $95,000 in KiwiSaver and $100,000 in savings. Personally, I predict that because compound interest is going to start to kick in, that she will smash each of these goals. And from experience, I don't think that people quite comprehend until they get to experience it what a lack of a mortgage payment does to your bank account. By the end of 2024, her daughter will have finished school and the plan is to take a year's sabbatical in 2025 and have more than enough money behind her to support herself. Between now and then, she will flesh out all ideas around how to make an income, just bash some ideas out, research it and begin to build a plan. She wants to do some travelling with her daughter and partner and do some great walks in New Zealand. She wants to have days and weeks where she gets the freedom to fill them up. She wants to pursue her art and see if this may turn into a career, a potential transition away from teaching. Or not, she will see how the cards fall. Having no debt and money coming in is going to give her the choice to decide. So how much does she spend each year, I wondered. Well, last year she spent $30,000 to live and she put over $30,000 on her mortgage. This year she is tracking to have saved up that $10,000 she wanted to, will own her own home, and therefore get to keep the roughly $3,000 that was going towards mortgage payments each month. This year she is tracking to have expenses of about $22,000, which is surprisingly little, I thought. But it's accurate, she should know, she tracks every single cent she earns and spends after all. She takes home about $5,450 a month after tax, pays $2,600 a year in rates, and insurance is her second biggest outgoing. She spends up to $140 a week on groceries. It's that missing mortgage payment of about $3,000 a month which is really going to move the needle for Rachel. That is going to be a huge pay rise for her each month, and given that she has low expenses, it's going to build up fast in her bank accounts. I've said to her that once she is debt-free, it will be time for us to have bit of a sit down and I'll give her some suggestions for where to go from here that will be in line with her long-term plans. Just coming back to her KiwiSaver for a moment, she was a late starter, having never taken an interest in it, but it was the school financial administrator who pulled her aside one day and asked her why she is not in the scheme. Rachel just shrugged her shoulders, she didn't know why, she was just apathetic about it, but the woman said, you are paying into it now, and she just signed her up. 
Rachel says, and I agree, that sometimes instead of pussyfooting around with suggestions, we need more women and men like this to say to us, you are doing this, no excuses. So ever since she has added $104 a fortnight. I've actually spoken with countless people who say that it was an older mentor at work that told them to pay into superannuation, told them not to argue about it, to sign up, shut up and get on with it. They are all extremely grateful for the shove in the right direction. I wondered about the financial relationship between her and her partner and to be honest I was concerned about her financial security given that they have been together for a number of years now meaning that under law both he and she could be forced to share assets in a breakup. They have not signed an agreement and nor do they feel the need to, she said. If anything, she said, he has more to lose than her. So everything they do together is 50-50. Both have children, so both live in their own homes and neither want to parent each other's children. Both have come out of former relationships feeling a bit worse for wear, so they have a good understanding on that level. She said that she feels pressure from society to live together, but she loves her whare and he loves his, and they are both happy that the only thing they financially share is going halves in a lawnmower. They talk about the future after the kids have grown and left home. Maybe they'll live together, maybe they won't, but for now it totally works how they do it. She does, however, have a will that is up to date and clear about what happens with her entire estate if she were to pass away. I then asked her in regards to money what keeps her awake at night, and it harks back to her upbringing again, and in the back of her mind is the fear of losing everything she has worked hard for, of seeing it all just disappear, or not reaching the goal she has set herself, or having a health issue. I can't see either of those first two things happening, and it feels like a hangover from her past that she needs to let go of. So if I were to give Rachel $10,000 right now, what would she do with it? Pay the mortgage off and put the rest in the bank. She would take her 14-year-old to the shops and go and blow a couple of hundred, maybe buy herself a nice piece of jewellery. And in a way, that would be part of my thought for her once she's debt-free. Spend a month just enjoying keeping that extra money and go and treat yourself. All those little things that you might have held off buying, go out and do it. Enjoy it because by goodness you have earned the right to. Next steps for Rachel is to plan an approach for saving up an emergency fund of about six months of expenses and tucking that away in a bank account. Then it will be time to put some more thought into saving up cash for the sabbatical year and then investing for the long term, both in her KiwiSaver and outside of her KiwiSaver. To get into the investing groove, she currently uses Sharesies, investing just $30 a fortnight into the SmartShares New Zealand 50 fund and she has a current balance of about $1,500 with a current return of 5.5%. She has set this up to show her daughter how it works as well, but is the one who keeps an eye on it the most. With her daughter, she is educating her about money by being very calm, very open and honest, showing her where the money goes and what money comes in, and being very transparent, which I think is an excellent way to educate kids, as it shows that money management is just a part of normal daily life. Given that every dollar Rachel has coming in is accounted for and earmarked for debt, her daughter is not yet in KiwiSaver. It just has not been a priority, she said, but speaking as her auntie, I really hope this gets put on the to-do list within the next couple of months. In the meantime, her daughter receives a weekly $20 allowance that she is learning to budget with, buying all her own clothes, paying for things with her friends, and setting some aside into savings as well. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to chat through options with Rachel as to the next steps to help her move forward financially, if and when she asks me for them. I don't tend to offer advice unless asked, but I did encourage Rachel to complete the goals she has set in full before hitting the next step, 
which is saving and investing and building up long-term wealth. So what about a few resources that she might suggest to you and I? Mr Money Mustache has been a big influence on her. When she takes a year off, she is going to sell the car and buy a bike. Why, I asked. Environmental reasons, the planet. She has done enough driving for one person, she said. She loves Scott Pape of the Barefoot Investor. She called him a man of the people, and he has a way of lifting people up and helping them. She sometimes listens to the Mad Scientist podcast, and also she recommends the podcast Under the Skin by Russell Brand, and also the Lewis Howes podcast, and that's H-O-W-E-S. She said that he is the guy who will help you be amazing. And listen to Ear Hustle to humble yourself, she said. And finally, read the book Sapiens, which she said talks about why we are the way we are. After all that listening to others, I wondered if there was someone in her life with whom she could openly talk about money. Sadly, no. There is me, of course. I'm always up for a chat about good money management any day of the week, and she can talk with her partner openly about money. But to date, this is not something we discuss a lot. But thankfully, I appear to have said the right thing at the right time, which she has found useful. But with her wealthy friends, it's considered crass to talk about money. Now, before I wrap up, I have another quick message from Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. If I'm honest, I never knew my sister was so organised and was such a planner, but she said that being a teacher for all these years forces you to be that way. The ability to plan your day, your week, your month and year is instrumental in making progress. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear that because it takes work, but if you want to move out of the situation you don't want to be in, well, you have to work at it sometimes for a very long period of time. Rewriting the narrative you learned about money in your youth also takes work, and if you can't work it out yourself, then do what Rachel did and reach out to some professionals to help set you in the right direction. The one thing I think was understated when we spoke was her contentment with what she has. If you were to walk into her home, it's beautiful and also very simple. Everything has a purpose and a place, And I think that lack of consumerism has been instrumental in getting her ahead. Rachel's story is an excellent example of steady and consistent attention to detail and ability to plan over a long period of time and stick to the process, seeing it to the end. I don't think anything could have prepared her for the end of a marriage and the biggest natural disaster our country had seen up until that point. But planning and setting goals gives you focus and with that comes a sense of control. That has helped her stick to her teaching career, weather the Christchurch earthquakes and the subsequent insurance battle, and with her teenager, thrive after a divorce. It's been a long grind to get to this point, and take it from me, she is knackered, but by the time you hear this, she will own her own home outright, which is a phenomenal achievement for a woman on a single income. But it was the reason I wanted to share her story, because nothing worth doing tends to be easy. And it's really been a 13-year journey to get it done. And I wanted her story to inspire others who find themselves in a similar situation. I'm just really excited to pick up the phone and help her plan out the next phase as she leaves debt in her rearview mirror forever and looks forward to growing her wealth, having a well-earned break, and most of all, having the autonomy over her own time. So thanks, Rachel, for chatting to me. I hope I did you justice. I've got absolutely no doubt that if I didn't, I'll be hearing about it. Sisters are pretty good like that. 
So that's all from me this week. I'll be back next Wednesday with another money journey of another Kiwi. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit subscribe and it will automatically update your podcast app each time I release a new episode. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And if you feel the urge, leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about my podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.